Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode that you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm still Tame Kill. Occasionally Tame, we have an issue that is either suggested by a loyal listener. Which we love. Or which is somehow relevant because a, a, a fairly recent appellate case came out that encouraged us to discuss it. Today, our topic is based one of those recent cases examples. I know. And just to get us started off, I'm going <laughs> to ask you something, Wade. Okay. Knock, knock. Oh, Jesus. Who's there? Uh, banana. Banana who? Knock, knock. Who's there? Banana. Banana who? Knock, knock. Oh, come on. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? Orange, you glad I didn't say banana? That was terrible. I know. All right. So my five-year-old nephew would be disappointed in that one. So, folks, today we're going to talk about no-knock search warrants. This topic has been the focus of proposed legislation at the state level and at the federal level for years. So there's some misconceptions surrounding how a search warrant is executed that does – how do officers who don't have a no-knock provision get into the house versus the ones that do? Yeah. So we decided to delve into this topic for our listeners who are interested in search and seizure law. This topic reminds me of that old Tony Orlando and Dawn song. Knock three times on the ceiling if you want me. Twice on the pipes if you ain't gonna show. Now, let's take a poll tape. Knock three times. I would love to know how many of our listeners actually were alive in 1970, the year that song came out, and you know every word. You and me. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) I think it's pretty much it. So before we jump into this topic, uh, shout out to my awesome staff attorney, John Ah, J.B. Bryant. Go J.B. For his, I think we have some applause. Uh, That's not. That's not applause. No, that wasn't. There we go. J.B., J.B., J.B. Thanks for his research on this topic. So, yeah. Tane, as a judge, there are a couple different ways in which this whole no-knock topic might come in front of you. First, you might be asked to sign a search warrant. Right. What's the other? And you might be considering a motion to suppress that deals with search warrants. Absolutely. Now, to open disclosure, I signed a bunch of search warrants. I did a whole lot when I was a magistrate. Right. Did you? No. Uh, as I've said on other podcasts, I mean, in my jurisdiction, we rarely uh, sign search warrants. Magistrate uh, judges almost exclusively handle that. So to understand what a no-knock provision actually means, what that phrase actually means, it is best if we start with the requirements or limitations on law enforcement officers when there is no no-knock provision. And, and, and let's back up just a little bit. So, so a no-knock provision essentially means, Wade, that when the officers go to the door to make a search, they don't, have to they don't, do, they don't do nothing. They kick the door and right. go in. 
So all this is based, Tane, on that the warrant requirement established under the U.S. Constitution. Tell the folks a little bit about what the warrant requirement is so we're all on the same starting page. Absolutely. So the Fourth Amendment says that the government is not allowed to search or seize anything or anyone without a warrant. That's the warrant requirement. Search warrants authorize searches and or seizures of stuff, basically, compared to an arrest warrant, which authorizes the seizure of a person. Now, obviously, there are important, well-defined exceptions to the warrant requirement, and we're not going to address that today. Actually, we've talked about it before in some other episodes. Right. Instead, in this episode, we are addressing situations where a search warrant was sought by a law enforcement officer. Yeah, so the officer seeks a search warrant and provides an affidavit setting forth the probable cause allegations as to why a warrant is justified. The officer leaves the judge's office with written permission to conduct that search. Now... How does the officer now conduct the entry into the premises search? That's really what this is all about. So OCGA 17527. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. <laughs> That's so that satisfying. Um, I'm not going to read the statute to you, but basically... It allows necessary and reasonable force, that's the phrase that it uses, to execute the entry into the building or structure or whatever, as long as the, and this, this is important to read, in an, that after verbal notice or an attempt in good faith to give verbal notice by the officer directed to execute the warrant, he is, one, refused admittance, two, the person or persons within the building or part thereof, refuse to acknowledge and answer the verbal notice or the acknowledge the presence of the officer, or three, the building or property or part thereof is not occupied. So I think, Tane, there's some misunderstandings of why we need no-knocks, the no-knock provision to be initialed or be authorized, because people don't understand what they have to do. What's the phrase that everybody talks about when executing a search warrant? You have to knock and announce. I mean, essentially, you know, it's police and then boom <laughs> and then boom. Yeah. Um, contrary to popular opinion, Tane, officers have the authority to forcefully enter a building if the defendant chooses to if the defendant chooses to not come to the door. Right. And, and that's frankly not the case. I mean, it would be ludicrous if that were the rule. A target could gather up all the stash or contraband and hide it or flush it and then casually appear at the door. Uh, and Stretching say, oh, language. Yeah. Hey, can I help you? Would you fellows like something? Could we come in for some tea or something? Yeah. Um, no, that, that ain't how that works exactly. Or but, they could just think, say, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you knocking. Nah, nah, nah. It'd be like the French guys at the top of the, of the walls of the castle and uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> no thanks, we already got one. <laughs> By the way, that is not copyrighted. We are fine with that. A shout out. I said what movie it was from. We're, shout we're, out all, rule. Co- we're all covered shout on the out shout out rule. rule. All right, go ahead. So either way, the resident, if that were the rule, the resident could just thwart the, the execution of a court order search warrant. And that's just not the law. Yeah, and, and and I mean let's let's remember what the purpose for a no knock warrant is. It's usually either a some sort of safety issue for the officers where they've proven that they're probably you know armed people there, and if they announce their presence, that they're going to be you know potentially in in grave danger, or 
that there is da- imminent danger, imminent threat of the destruction of the object of the search if they go into the, um, if they announce their presence and uh, before they go in. So let's turn to the case law. We've talked about the Constitution. We've talked about statutes. The notice requirement can be dispensed with that is normally associated with the execution of a warrant, but that requires one of two things, either a no-knock provision that has been signed by the judge in advance or some sort of exigent circumstances not normally present when they execute warrants. Yeah. So if the judge who issued the search warrant also authorizes that no-knock provision, Tane, the requirement, that knock-and-announce requirement is dispensed with. So in order for the judge to do that, though, the search warrant has to be issued in a way that the affidavit itself sets out how this particular circumstance is different than other normal circumstances. They've got to give them something in the affidavit now that is unique about this case, not the officer's general experience and how uh, drug dealers typically have guns and all You can't, that's not enough. There has to be right. something about this circumstance. And yeah, the reason has- we're talking about this is that some recent case law has come out to really attempt to rein this in. Yeah. The case law says that the standard required for establishing the reasonable suspicion necessary to justify a no-knock provision, as opposed to the standard for establishing probable cause in general, is not very high. But you remember, Tane, we've talked about this in evidence topics. It, it may be a low hurdle, but it's a hurdle. Yeah. I in mean, other words, it, the, the standard may not be very high, but it is a standard. And you have to meet it. Yes. Yeah. And so the affidavit itself must establish, and this is what you said earlier in, in your words, but what they said in judge words is it says that they must demonstrate exigent circumstances where the police can show, quote, forewarning would either inc- greatly increase the peril or lead to the immediate destruction of evidence, end quote. And again, all this case law is in our outline. You can get it if you need it at goodjudgepod.com. Right, and Wade and I are going to give you our thoughts about how often those circumstances present themselves. But I would uh, say they are incredibly rare, and I would bet if you took a poll. Well, you just go ahead and do it now. Yeah. If you took a poll of good cops, mm-hmm. people with experience who have been out there in the world, mm-hmm. I think that they would generally tell you no not provisions get people killed. Agreed. On both sides. And let's let's think about that folks because you you literally are going into someone's house without telling them you're a police officer. I, I mean, think they, they call that home invasion without the search warrant. Yeah, I mean you are knocking down someone's door and rushing in and you're doing it generally in a place where crimes are being committed. Now, what does that say to the people who are inside? Now, generally, they might be inclined to shoot at police officers anyway, but they are definitely going to be inclined to shoot at people they don't know are police officers who who are are breaking in their door. Who are committing home invasion. Yeah. Because that happens sometimes. It doesn't get reported often, Tame, because it's really hard to say they they stole my kilo. Right. (laughs) That doesn't usually work out to a great, you know. Rarely gets 911 calls, but sometimes. So at the end of the day, um, I don't think that this is a, this is, there is a misconception, I believe, that no knocks are, are required all the time. So having discussed about all of this in the abstract, let's look at this recent case that spurred us to even discuss this topic in the first place, okay? Sure. Hughes v. State. 
tell everybody when that one was decided. So this is hot law, people. This was decided January the 4th of twenty. 23, the year of our Lord, 2023. <laughs> so let me, why don't you tell the folks the facts and then we'll talk a little bit about it as we go forward. Sure. And and it, it does bear mm-hmm. a lengthy discussion of the facts. Uh, Bonnie Hughes was charged with possession of methamphetamine with intent to distribute following the execution of a no-knock search warrant. The officers in Spalding County, using confidential informants, arranged for two controlled purchases of methamphetamine from Hughes at her residence. Following these purchases, a narcotics investigator applied for a search warrant for the residence. In the warrant application and affidavit, the investigator stated the two controlled purchases and citizen complaints of meth use and sales occurring at the Hughes residence. Further, the investigator attested that there were surveillance cameras on the corners of the residence. Further, the investigator attested that officers had attempted a knock and talk at the residence and no one answered. Hmm. Shocking. Uh, the investigator, <laughs> no, thanks. No, thank you. We already <laughs> we, got one. We don't, <laughs> we don't need a Bible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the investigator stated that controlled substances could be sold in various quantities, which could be small in size and therefore easily hidden. The investigator requested a no-knock search warrant, stating that there were reasonable grounds to believe that giving verbal notice would greatly increase the peril to officers executing the warrant and lead to the immediate destruction of the evidence sought. In support of his request, the investigator said surveillance cameras are set up on the corners of the residence. You said that earlier. Mm -hmm. And Bonnie Hughes has been known to move illegal narcotics on a daily basis, all of which said circumstances leads to a quote high risk of contraband suspected of being located within the premises being destroyed or secreted away to to avoid or prior to apprehension if the officers are required to knock and announce prior to entry the magistrate court granted the investigator the requested no knock search warrant on the reasoning that verbal notice would increase the peril to the officers executing the warrant. That's, that was all a part of the record in this case. Right. So, Tane, we talked about earlier, sometimes it's it's when they're requesting a warrant that involves us as judges. Sometimes it's when you're hearing a motion to suppress. So Ms. Hughes' lawyer files a motion to suppress. And what did what were they arguing? Sure, they argued that the search warrant was invalid because it contained an invalid no-knock provision. Obviously, if the trial court found the search warrant to be invalid, the resulting search would be inadmissible. So after reciting some of the general principles surrounding no-knock provisions we've already discussed in the first part of this episode, the Court of Appeals compared this case with some other cases. And I don't know that we necessarily – well, you know what? Tell the people about Poole. Yeah, because I think the the facts make a difference in this case. So in Poole versus State, and the site of that's on our website – goodjudgepod.com. This court held, the the Supreme Court held that a person peeking through a window did not support police entry without verbal notice. In other words, like the the people who were the targets were looking out the window and they saw me and then ran away. Yeah. And and in another case, Smith versus State, officers requested a no-knock provision because the target property named in the search warrant regularly had people standing around outside who could warn others of the approaching officers. The existence of surveillance cameras here, in in, in the case we're talking about, um, has the same effect as peeking through the window or standing outside in that an individual may be able to see the officer's approach. Moreover, 
There was no evidence that Hughes had a history of violence or had packaged or located the drugs in her residence for quick disposal. An alleged drug dealer inside a location with surveillance cameras without more does not show that the defendant is likely to harm police or destroy evidence. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So we're going to talk very, at some level of, I guess, um, judgmentally uh, (laughs) about how this case came about, because there's going to be a couple of really important factors here in just a minute that I think you're going to understand why this case, number one, seems to have departed from some other cases, but number two, why it came out the way it did. So the court concluded by finding that in the Hughes case, as in Poole, the notice requirement was not excused merely because someone in the residence may have discovered the presence of officers prior to approaching to execute the warrant. The no-knock provision was thus invalid, and, the, and they held that the Superior Court erred in denying the motion to suppress. Now, admittedly, I'm telling you, and we've got a list of them here, Tane, there is a, there is a, there's all kind of cases where that support the issuance of a no-knock provision and that can which can lead to a, I guess, a successful motion to suppress. And we've got those in here. But, Tane, let's talk about more than talking about the facts of cash versus state and brown versus state. Let's, let's talk about talk about things toward more, more generally, Tane. Yeah. So when looking at the facts of precedent, it's important to note, whether the trial court granted a motion to suppress or denied the motion to suppress. I mean, that's that's where it comes up most frequently. What the appellate courts are generally looking at, though, are facts in the record which support the trial judge's decision. So I think for you as a trial judge, for those out there who are looking at at no-knock, the issuance of no-knock search warrants, one of the things that you need to understand is documentation of the reasons for issuing the no-knock warrant are just critical. I mean, that, that's they are. the and reason think- that you have to you have to put something in the record to support why this case is different from a regular knock-and-announce case. I think appellate courts generally, Tane, without getting in, in any specific examples, I think appellate courts generally are trying to uphold whichever decision the trial court made sure so if the trial court after looking at credibility of witnesses and all that other stuff decided to suppress that i think they're starting with the presumption of well we probably let's see if we can we see if we can uphold this Mm -hmm. if they decided to not suppress that let's start with the presumption of trying to uphold our our trial judges sometimes you can't but but i think that's where they start and i think that's why when you look at this seemingly inconsistent precedent it's really not all that inconsistent when you look at 
we overturn what the uh, the lower court did or we affirm what the lower court did. I think you're going to see that a, a great deal. Agreed. There are some federal cases that talked about in surveillance cameras. And, and Tane, we could go on forever citing cases where um, no-knock provisions were deemed proper and other ones when they weren't deemed proper. But we're going to break this Hughes case down because we think there's some things you need to see. Yeah. We're not going. We're not really sure that continuing down that path of, of this case, you know, this case counter case, this case counter case. Next thing you know, you're confused because you're hearing all these different fact patterns, and you're not sure what turned this case from that one. Right. Let's not do that. Instead, Tane, there is a lengthy quote that is in that pool decision that you talked about. Right. And it is contained in the Hughes opinion. And I think that's going to be instructive. So yeah. let's talk about one, two, three, four, five, six things that were that were in the um, in the decision that we think that you and I have sort of voted is are important. So you talk sure. about the first one. Yeah, sure. So the so the Hughes quote the Hughes court quoting uh, the decision pool says the only information received by the officers in immediate proximity to the time the warrant was being executed was that before they could make an announcement, a person inside the residence had looked out of and then left the window. So that was in pool. Yep. So they talked about the immediate proximity time-wise right. to the execution of the warrant, that that was important because in pool. They said it should not have been suppressed. In Hughes, they said it should have been suppressed. Right. They're saying, well, we didn't have any information in Hughes. Mm-hmm. We had it in pool that it was close in time to the execution. That's, of exa- that's exactly right. So then they go on and they say, but there was no evidence that the officer executing the warrant who had placed the defendant under surveillance believed that the person who peered through the window was the defendant and not some person unconnected with suspected drug activity. That came from Poole. And so they're talking about whether or not the peeker has anything to do with the alleged illegal activity. That would have been important. Right. It might be mama who, uh, you know, doesn't have anything to do with the drug sales at the house or anything. Correct. So what's the next one? So then they said there is no evidence that the defendant or the individual who peered through the window had a history of violence or that either had threatened violence if law enforcement officers entered. Hmm. Maybe we need to include that information if we think we need a no-knock, that there's a history of violence or threatened to use it this time. Yes. Then they said there was no evidence that the defendant had packaged or located the drugs in the apartment for quick disposal. Maybe that needs to be in our affidavit if we're seeking a no-knock provision, huh? That's right. And then the court said, the only reference in the record of harm to the officers or destruction of the evidence is the officer's testimony regarding a, quote, possibility of such based only on the fact that someone looked out a window and then left the window. So possibility is not going to be enough, Tane. We need to use probabilities, proven history, that kind of stuff, right? Right. And then finally, the reasonableness standard for a forceful entry is not high. We've talked about that low hurdle thing. Mm -hmm. That testimony is simply inadequate to establish reasonable grounds to believe that in this case, Forewarning would have greatly increased the officer's peril or led to the immediate destruction of evidence. In other words, that is what you have to include. Right. So Poole, and and I think I said earlier, Poole was upheld and the other one was not. That's not true. Both of them found that it should have been suppressed. Exactly. 
But Tane, I want you, since I know that you haven't spent quite as much time in the Hughes decision as I have. Right. I want you to read this next section of our outline and really help people grasp, because I think this is vitally important to understanding Hughes. Sure. So there's one additional discussion in the Hughes decision that does bear discussion. Um, Near the end of the opinion, and remember, we promised an important issue appeared at the end of the decision. The court discussed the state's argument that it is actually irrelevant whether the no-knock provision was valid because Ms. Hughes was outside in the yard of the home when the warrant was executed. So she was out. They say, but judge, that doesn't matter. She was outside. We didn't use the nunuk. And I think normally that would be relevant. Right. Carry on. Therefore, because of that argument, the officers did not even need to use the no-knock authorization, according to the prosecutor. There's only one problem here. That evidence of where Miss Hughes was at the time the warrant was executed was not a part of the record. Actually, it appeared that no live witness testified at the motion to suppress. I mean, that's a problem, folks. Uh, there was there was a motion to suppress hearing with no evidence. Tell them what the quote said about the evidence. Well, to quote the court, they said, the sole evidence provided at the hearing on the suppression motion was the search warrant. I mean, guys, I, I, I don't I don't know, because I was reading this Hughes case and I was like, man, this is going to be a departure because it sounds like it had a lot of the elements that we would normally consider to be important when considering a no knock, the surveillance cameras, the history and all that stuff. Right. They talked about a little bit about the um, the the things that ought to be included. But then they finally concluded with the thing that if you'd have told me this in the beginning, I'd have thrown this case in the trash probably as not being all that relevant. There was no evidence presented. Right. I mean, I I think it would have been highly relevant. I think Mm -hmm. it probably would have saved the motion to suppress Mm -hmm. if they had just put an officer on the stand to say, oh, and by the way, Ms. Hughes was standing out in the yard and we didn't have to use the no-knock provision because there was nobody in the house to flush the meth. And so we just went on in because we were authorized to do so under the search warrant. But nobody said that at the hearing. Yeah, that's so. a problem. And, and so Tane and, and I, you and I are both kind of concerned that, that there was some kind of memo or a class or something at a local seminar among prosecutors a couple years ago where everybody determined that they just shouldn't, they should provide as little information as possible in any pretrial motion to avoid a fishing expedition by the defense. Yeah. So I can't imagine the situation where a motion to suppress is heard without a live witness testifying. I'll tell you, that's never happened in my career. Yeah, I I think I would be saying, okay, call your first witness. Uh, You know, so and I mean, we're being facetious. I understand, you know, in court, sometimes things get a little crazy and you think everybody's making a proffer and everybody's on the same page. But just understand understand when you've got something as important as a suppression hearing um, in a drug case, which is really the only evidence in the case, the only evidence in the case. And, you know, the question is whether they did or did not have to use the no knock search warrant. You might want to put up a witness or have them put up a witness uh, to make that determination. There's one other thing, Wade, that I did want to go back to, and I think it bears repeating. And that is what the court seems to be emphasizing in Hughes is you need to show something that differentiates this case from just a typical, you know, drug case. I mean, there are some, you know, 
uniform principles that apply in all drug searches, which is, yes, there might be some danger. Yes, there might be some possibility that the drugs get flushed or swallowed or, you know, whatever might happen with them. I mean, that kind of exists as a baseline in every drug search. So something has got to be shown on the record in the affidavit that makes this one different and more difficult than the typical search of a drug house. And so we appreciate the desire of prosecutors to avoid fishing expeditions during pretrial motions. And we know that happens sometimes. Sure. But at some point, the evidence of what happened has to be made a part of the record. Judges cannot make proper determinations. Appellate courts cannot make proper determinations where cases don't have any evidence. And if in, in, in Hughes, unless I misread the, the decision, it says the only evidence was the search warrant. Nobody testified as to where the lady was, so we didn't even use it. It seemed like it would have thwarted the entire focus of the defense argument if they had pointed out that, yeah, we had an invalid no-knock, but we didn't use it. That's and right. Anyway, well, so, so let's just talk. Just one last thought Tane, yeah. before we wrap this up on, on no-knocks as a general rule. Sure. They are disfavored. Yeah, and, and understand that going in, okay? This is something you're being asked to sign as a judge that – out the gate is not favored. And so, and the reason they're not favored is because there's tragic examples. And we talk about this during NJO with our students about no knock provisions where people have gotten hurt, killed and, and just horrific outcomes. And we're not, we're not going to go back and cite all the cases, but there's, there are a number of occasions when that's happened. Right. Every so often proposed legislation gets introduced. It happened several times, uh, most recently about, I think, two years ago or three years ago, where they want to eliminate the use of no-knocks or so curtail them that, that, I mean, you and I talk about this with NJO, seriously, at some length. That's right. Uh, Some of the best and most experienced law enforcement officers that you know, we all know, seem to be in a consensus that no-knock provisions are dangerous and that the residents have no way of knowing whether or not they're the victims of a home invasion by a rival, you know, gang or somebody else who might be, you know, there to steal their money and or product uh, or whether, you know, this is a search warrant being executed by law enforcement officers. In my home circuit, the officers generally don't even ask for a no-knock provision for the very reasons we have just discussed. They know they're not going to get them. And now there is a case every once in a while. And when I say they don't usually ask, I mean, one out of a hundred, but there is that one or two times that they do, they do ask and their commanding officers in my circuit don't even authorize them as a general rule Mm -hmm. because the relatively low requirements associated with knock and announce. Yeah. And, and and let's talk about that real quick, Wade. This is what's constitutionally required. Police. Police, boom, boom, go into the house. So, you know, I mean, that's not leaving a whole lot of time for destruction of evidence. And it certainly raises the potential level. I'm sorry, lowers the potential level of danger if you just knock a couple of times and announce that you're police officers. I mean, it doesn't guarantee anything, but it it certainly lets them know it's not a home invasion. There are some fairly recent U.S. Supreme Court precedent 
on the issue of no-knocks, which by by U.S. Supreme Court standards is pretty recent. I mean, you know, it's yeah. only two decades ago. Yeah, right. Um, there are a bunch of Georgia appellate cases on the topic, and there's really no bright line rule on when a no-knock is always allowed or never allowed. Just just understand that it is clear, and all the case law suggests it, that a record made to the judge issuing the warrant now, not at the motion to suppress, the one issuing the warrant and established during the, I guess, subsequent motion to suppress, must include particularized evidence relating to this situation and not merely conclusory statements based upon an officer's training, experience, or how these case are, cases are generally handled. So, folks, that's all of our episode uh, dealing with no-knock search warrants. Uh, this is clearly an issue of public consciousness and, and concern, and it's on the mind of the appellate courts. And the, the record must be clear and apparent that, that a no-knock was necessary or proper and justified under the facts, and that the particular facts of this case support the issuance of this no-knock provision. And folks, as always, the outline is full of statutory and case citations because Wade's good like that. <laughs> uh, and that outline can always be found at goodjudgepod.com. Reach out to us on goodjudgepod at gmail.com with all your podcast topic ideas. And with that, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Did you know that Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, and Jim Morrison all died at the ripe old age of 27. Hard to believe how young they were given their lasting impact on the music. And to all you musicians out there who are 28 years old or older, good job. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try our best to give you actionable information, but in a format that does not make you want to hurt yourself. Two thoughts. Some topics allow us the latitude to be a little bit more fun. Number two, if we've failed you, we will try to do our best to do better in the next episode. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose us this time. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former director, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law, my new part-time employer. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises all along, but... We didn't, so... Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges all across Georgia. Wade and I are also grateful to the State Justice Institute who allow us to do this through their generosity. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, SJI, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact someone else with your complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Please visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all our episode outlines and more details about our podcasts. Some of you send emails asking for copies of the outlines. Seriously, people, they're available 24-7, 365 at the website goodjudgepod.com. And we say that like 20 times during every broadcast. But seriously, you can upload or download or otherwise use them as you wish 
and on your schedule and at your convenience. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. 